morning is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that when you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges just. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pray for the, oh, pray for the service. <laughs> Sorry. Lord God, thank you for Kyle. Thank you for your word. Anoint his lips today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Missy. So good to be with you all this morning. Um, I want to encourage you, um, if you are relatively new to our church or maybe new to the Christian faith in general, um, we have some, some really cool opportunities for you to not only just kind of get to know the people sitting around you, but, um, but also to learn what Christianity is. Um, and one way that we do that at our church is on Sunday night we have um, kind of like a fundamentals small group, and it basically teaches just what, just what it says, the fundamentals of Christianity. What is, um, what is Christianity all about? What does it mean to be a Christian, really? Um, and I think right now they're going through ba like basics of what the Bible is and how to study it um, and why it's important to read it. Um, so, so yeah, if, if you're kind of feeling like you might enjoy something like that, um, there's also opportunity at, at things like that to so just get to know people and know, get to know each other's names. And we have other community groups that meet on other nights if that night doesn't suit you. Um, but it's just so good to be with you here this morning as we approach a new sermon series that we're calling Life After Loss. And I know that when I, I preach on a, a topic, um, I'm, I'm walking on holy ground for people. Because when I talk about suffering and when I talk about loss, no doubt many of you have had experiences in your life that are very close and very personal to you, um, that are sensitive areas um, in your life to this day. Um, perhaps the loss of a child or a divorce or... Um, bankruptcy or things that you're going through right now, someone's ill or sick. I know um, suffering comes to us at a cost and it's difficult. So as a preacher um, throughout my life, I, I've, you know, preached for a number of years now, but the older I get, I guess I'm, I'm relatively young depending on the room I'm in, but, <laughs> um, you know, as, as a preacher, I think I'm, I'm old enough to know that, that preaching on suffering is a is a complicated thing to do because there's so many different experiences and different levels of what people have felt and what they've gone through. We can't always entirely understand each other in our suffering. We can't understand suffering on a blanket kind of basic level um, if you've experienced any amount of loss in your life. But there are unique things that happen to us that has a certain sting. And as a preacher, it's hard not to come across sort of... Um, unaware, right, or oblivious to the pain that you feel and just kind of, here's a Bible verse and this should make it feel better and go away. To not come across like that um, is sometimes a challenge. So we're, we're, I know that we're standing on holy ground with this, um, with, with issues. Some of you have endured perhaps frequent loss um, and maybe even um, loss that is relatively new, um, so we're, we're going into this with a sense of reverence and respect for each other, but we're also going into it with hope um, that there is life after loss, that the message of Christianity is a message of hope. So this morning, I want to introduce this. Um, we're going to be going through the, the New Testament book, 1 Peter. It's a letter that was basically written to a church about how to endure suffering. It's about more than that. I don't want to oversimplify its message, but when you read 1 Peter, the overarching theme is obviously enduring suffering. How does the church, how do we as Christians follow Jesus yet endure the pain of life? <clears throat> so as we go through the New Testament letter, 
I'm hoping to deal with these hard and sometimes heavy facts of life, which are suffering, but also come out with it with hope and, jo- and, and joy and peace in our hearts. I want to aim to understand what's the normal process of suffering when it comes to us, spiritually and emotionally. Such as when we face a trauma, something breaks, something dies, something fails. And how that leads to the next stage, I think, when we endure trauma is insecurity, or we begin to lack trust. We start to think that I was safe in this area before, and now I'm not safe. And inevitably, where that leads us is to what I'm calling trigger behaviors. So so trauma trust triggers. Trigger behaviors. How do we deal now? With the trauma and the resulting insecurity that's created in our lives, well, those are our trigger behaviors. This is how we deal with what is now an insecure situation for us. And for many of us, those trigger behaviors are, are, are varied and wide and vast. Some of us isolate. Some of us hide. Some of us are ashamed of ourselves. Some of us are angry. The the words that you might have seen even in our text this morning, revile, we revile. Um, Another way that scripture describes this in Peter is we tend toward unbridled passion. That's how we fix the insecurity of our lives, through pleasure. Or perhaps deceit or threats or fights. You see, when we go through a trauma, our trust is touched. And when our trust is touched, we become insecure, and we have triggers. We react. We behave a certain way. In 1 Peter, the Christian community breaks that cycle. They break out of it, praise God. Amen? They find hope. They find a different way of life. They find blessing, they find hope, and they find grace. Their trauma is replaced by blessing. They're made alive. They're given life. Their trust is replaced by hope through prayer. Their insecurity becomes security in Christ. And their triggers, their anger, their reviling is transformed into grace. Transforming trigger behaviors to an attitude of grace. Isn't that great? But how? How when you're going through the valley of death do you possibly come up for breath under that water? That's how we're going to talk. That's what we're going to be talking about probably for about the next 10 weeks, where to find hope in the midst of suffering and loss. So this morning, though, I want to kick this off um, by considering, it's almost like a prequel to our series, the problem of pain. I want to start the conversation right there because it's a very important conversation. The problem of pain as it relates in general to life and faith. One author reminds us in this wonderful book called The Cross of Christ of uh, a tragedy that happened in 18th century Portugal, so 1700s. There was this incredible earthquake that happened in Lisbon on November 1st, 1755. Lisbon was devastated by an earthquake. Being All Saints Day, isn't that incredible? That's the day after Halloween. But being All Saints Day, the churches were all full. So this happened on a Sunday. The churches were all full, and 30 of those churches were destroyed. They caved in on themselves. Within six minutes, can you imagine this? Within six minutes, 15,000 people died, and 15,000 more people were dying. One of the many stunned people by the news of, by the news of this was the French philosopher Voltaire. You've heard of him? At least his name, you might not know anything about him, but you might know that. He was a French philosopher, Voltaire. He was stunned by this news, and for months he, he was writing about this situation, this tragedy. And he, he basically wondered, how could anyone now believe in the benevolence and omnipotence of God after this event? Now let me explain to you what that means. What he's saying is, after this tragedy, how could any of us dare to believe that God is good, and that God is in control. If we can't believe that God is good and God is in control, we can't believe in God. Why bother? Let's just believe in each other, right? I know lots of people that aren't good and lots of people that aren't in control. 
So what's, what's worth, why, why is this person worthy of our worship? He's not. And this was Voltaire's conclusion. How could anyone now believe in the benevolence and omnipotence of God? Friends, that is the problem of pain. When suffering comes in your life, when trauma or loss comes in your life, we are all of us tempted to wonder, is God really good? And if he's not good, if he's bad, if he's evil, that's not God. It can't be. We're in trouble. Or maybe he is good, but he just can't do anything about it. He's not stronger than I or you, me or you. And again, we're stuck with a wimpy God now that isn't able to do anything about our suffering. You see? That's the problem of pain. How do we make sense of it? And anyone who has endured any kind of suffering and trauma in life knows that we wrestle with those questions. God, do you hear me? Are you there? Do you care? Friends, if that's you, know that you are in good company with the authors of this book that we call the Bible. Because read the Psalms, friends, and they're asking God the same exact questions in their loss. It's as if my prayers are hitting the stony ears of my God. Do you hear me, O Lord? Are you there? Job prayed this, David prayed this, and they wondered. How can we now believe in a God that is good and powerful that loves me after this event? You know, friends, if we kind of pulled the room, I would imagine you would write down some of those events in your life. You would know exactly what I'm talking about, the event that just doesn't make sense. Why did this happen? It's not fair. And Voltaire writes in a poem, listen to to these words, unhappy mortals. This guy was fun at a party. (laughs) Unhappy mortals, dark and mourning earth, a frighted, a frighted gathering of humankind, eternal lingering of useless pain. Come, ye philosophers who cry, all's well. Happened for a reason. God's in control. All's well. And contemplate the ruin of this world. What eye may see into his deep designs? He's talking about God now. From a being all perfect, evil cannot come to be. It does not come from another, since God alone is master. Yet evil exists. Oh, sad truth. Oh, astonishing mingling of contrarieties, contradictions. A God came to console our afflicted race. He visited the earth, and it has not changed. See what he's doing? He is calling the Bible's bluff. He's saying baloney to all of this because of the suffering he endured, because of the problems and the traumas of his life. He's calling it out. And friends, we can say, oh, how unholy this man, how dare you speak this way. But friends, isn't this buried deep in our hearts too? Don't we feel the same way, though we might dare not say it at times? when our child dies, when our husband or wife left us unfairly and left us bruised and broken. You see, don't we sort of say the same thing? God, you visited this this earth and it has not changed. So friends, this is the problem of pain and the Christian has to do something about it. We have to have an answer for ourselves when we go through this gauntlet of trauma. The fact of suffering is the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith, I think. It's not, is there a God or is the Bible reliable? All those things, I think, can be well answered. The biggest problem, I think, is more of an emotional one. Why does he allow this suffering? The fact of our suffering makes us wonder about God in general, doesn't it? Its distribution and degree appear, it just appears to be entirely random at times like this earthquake, and unfair. If God is free and God is just and God is good, why do we suffer under his rule? So either he wants us to stop suffering, but he can't do anything about it, therefore he's not, he doesn't have the power to do anything about it, 
or he can stop it but chooses not to. Which is it and why? These are hard questions. And friends, I don't, I don't dare claim, by the way, to answer all these to your satisfaction by the end of the service. I hope that I can, some of them. You might know the, the dizzying and disorienting pain of life. And friends, this is what our, this series is all about. For the next 10 weeks, we're going to be asking these hard questions and dealing probably with the toughest issues of our own life. <clears throat> Illness, disability, abuse, poverty, betrayal, death, divorce. I mean, you name it. Put it in a line. And it takes the br our breath away. It knocks us on our back. It takes all shapes and sizes, and it challenges all of our faith. So what, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? So this morning, in kind of introducing this, I want to do two things. The first thing I want to do is examine more fully the, prob the problem of pain. Why does it hurt? Why do we suffer? I want to look at that a little bit. And then I want to invite us to consider what the cross of Jesus Christ has to say about it and what it teaches us. And that will hopefully answer some of our questions and begin a process which I admit is a lifelong journey of understanding about God and life. <clears throat> the problem of pain. We need to make some observations about this because in order for us to understand or even answer the questions that I just presented, we first have to understand what pain is and why God has allowed it. So firstly, I want to say about pain that suffering is an alien intrusion into God's world. Suffering is an alien intrusion into God's world. What I mean by that is God did not create this world for it to suffer, for it to experience traumatic loss. It's an alien intrusion. It is not part of God's design. You say, well, why did he allow it then? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But let's first... Look at this. It's an alien intrusion into God's world. According to Scripture, e suffering and trauma is a result of the curse of sin, which is death. Evil is an intrusion and have no part of the kingdom of God in Christ. The whole point of Christ coming to the cross proves the fact that this, these traumatic losses that we experience in life weren't not supposed to be. The fact that there is a cross shows us that. It demonstrates that. So, so trauma and suffering is a satanic and destructive onslaught against the creator. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 15, it says this. You guys have at least heard of Satan, I would assume. And if you've never heard of the Bible, you've at least heard of Satan and the character Satan. He's not like how Hollywood portrays him, right? He's not red with the horns and tail. That's just Hollywood's imagination. The Bible says that Satan used to be good. He was an angel of light in the presence of God, worshiping God. He was a good angel that God created. <clears throat> And it says this about Satan in Ezekiel chapter 28. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. A lamentation is like a, almost like a grief, right? The king of Tyre is a title for Satan that they're using here. Say to, say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, kerbuncle, who knows? Um, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. This beautiful creature created, this angel of light, covered in gems and stones and all these beautiful things, placed in the presence of God himself. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. You see, the Bible describes in another passage in Scripture in Isaiah chapter 14 that the unrighteousness that was found in him 
caused him to declare to God, I will rise above you, God. I will be worshipped over you. And friends, there is the source of the brokenness of our world. It is a usurping of God's authority. It's a scorning of his will. And it's a turning from his good law. And when that happens, we fall short of his blessing. We lose his presence. And we're left to ourselves. And the, the, the curse, the wages of sin is death. That death is the, the direct cause of all of our trauma. All of God's creation was created good, pure, blameless. Evil had its birth in the heart of Satan. And then scripture goes on to say that it was birthed the same way in us. Jesus describes an ill woman as bound by Satan. He rebuked disease by rebuking demons. In the New Testament, Paul said, I have this thorn in the flesh. It's mysterious as to what it was. It was some kind of suffering. We don't know what it is. Um, but Paul has this thorn in the flesh, <clears throat> and, he, and he calls it a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me, to test me. In a general sense, the Bible describes human suffering as outside of God's intention for this world. Foreign. Brought upon us when it was never his will for us to have it to begin with. See? Whatever form it takes, it is part of a greater curse that is the consequence of sin. It's common for us to think, well, why didn't God just make Satan not able to do any of this? Well, then Satan would have been a rock, right? He would have been a snail. He would have been a bird. And as would we. We wouldn't have the minds to object about why God made us the way he made us. Because we would have been robots, right? If God had not made the first people like this, we would have never sinned. The, the, the world would never have been cursed. And we, have, we would never have had to endure the sufferings and pains of life. So why didn't he just make us not able to do any of this? But if God made the first people not able to not sin, now this is going to get a little tricky. If God made us not able to not, in other words, he made us to sin. Let's say it positively so that you understand. Sin definitely in that scenario would be God's fault, right? He created us for the purpose of us sinning. Then you could clearly say this is all God's fault. But friends, he didn't create, create us like this to that end. Satan and the first man made a choice that in spite of their innate ability to be obedient, they chose not to be. So God didn't create us not able to not sin. He created us able to not sin. You see the difference? He created us able to not sin, and also he created us able to sin. And the reason that he did that is so that we would be free, that we would be like him, that we would choose, because otherwise there would be no relationship and no love. It would just be God's pile of wood in his garage. You see what I mean? In spite of all this, we can see, or because of all this, we can see that evil and the consequence of evil was the choice that we made to sin and be separate from God. And the result is this foreign intruder came into our lives, into the lives of everyone that's ever lived, and that is suffering. So suffering is an intrusion. Suffering also is often due to personal or corporate sin. All forms of um, human suffering are an intrusion, and therefore, because they're an intrusion, they, they at times are due to personal or corporate sin. Now, su suffering comes sometimes from the sin of others and sometimes from the sin of ourselves. But it does come at times because of our own personal choices or the choices of someone else. In Scripture, there are occasions when, we, when sickness, when suffering itself is God's punishment for sin. Deuteronomy chapter 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. 
There is a sense in which if we decide that God is foolish and I know more than him and I'm going to disobey him on all points, that we're going to sleep in the bed that we make, so to speak. That that could be bad for us. That that's going to result in some trauma on our lives. And we have to kind of understand that and be honest about that. At the same time, we also reject the Hindu belief in karma, which attributes all suffering to some kind of bad choice that you've made. See, there's a difference. What I'm saying is, sometimes that's true. Karma says it's always true. All suffering is because of a wrong from our past. We reject that as Christians. That's kind of like what Job, if you remember the Old Testament book of Job, that's kind of like what he was saying. He was, Job, you're suffering and you're sick and you're losing everything. You must have sinned. You must have done something wrong, right? Jesus cleared that up very clearly in John chapter 9. There was this guy, he was blind, and everyone was saying, oh, it's because he must have sinned. Like, who sinned, him or his mom, and, and, or his, his, his parents? And it says in John chapter 9, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? They're kind of like on this karma kick there, right? Who, who sinned? And Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, friends, I'm not suggesting that our suffering is always because we screwed up, but sometimes it is. And sometimes we have to come to grips with that. Number three, suffering is due to our human sensitivity to pain. Suffering is due to our human sensitivity to pain. One one guy said it like this, misfortune is made worse by the hurt we feel. You see, maybe my girl shouldn't have dumped me. Maybe she was wrong. Maybe she did all the wrong things and cheated on me and did all this junk, right? But it wouldn't be so bad if it didn't hurt, right? Like if I was just kind of like, eh, whatever. You know, I'll find someone new. You know, like just no pain. Like we just never experience it anymore. You see, there's something about the human condition that when something wrong happens, we feel it. We know it. And that sometimes is the, the, what we're really upset with. You know, we don't like the fact that something bad happened, but we, we grieve even more just how, how much it levels us and how much it affects our emotions, how much it hurts us internally. Suffering is due to our human sensitivity to pain. You say, I just wish I could feel less pain. And you know what? This is what I was talking about with triggers. You're in good company. You, you want to know what lots of people do? Well, they just start having sex with lots of people. That'll make the pain go away. Or how about, I'm just going to get drunk every night. That will make me not feel so intently what I feel. And this is what we do. We escape our triggers to trauma. So suffering is due to our human sensitivity to pain. Pain, pain gives valuable warning signals necessary for personal and social society. We might not like pain, but friends, you need it. And a great example of this is when we don't feel it anymore, like the disease leprosy. Leprosy numbs the extremities of the body so that when you get a cut or an infection, you don't feel it. And if you don't feel it, that's bad. Because now you don't know it's there, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and body parts start falling off of you. You see, pain is a grace at times, isn't it? Nerve reactions must hurt for us to protect our bodies. Isn't that true? And friends, similarly, if we didn't feel emotional pain of a breakup or a death or some sort of injustice, we'd live life without caution. And and what's even, I think, more important than this, than living life without caution, we would also live life without an awareness that something's wrong with it. If you walk into a place where children are starving because of some war and famine and disease are the outcome and it enrages you and it saddens you, good, it should. That pain is what God has given you by his grace so that we can know something is wrong, so that we can do something about it, so that we can correct it. 
You see, suffering is due to our human sensitivity to pain, and pain is a grace of God to us in a fallen world. Number four, suffering has to do with the kind of environments God has placed us. Suffering has to do with the kind of environments God has placed us. So sometimes, like I said, suffering is the result of you know, personal um, rebellion or, or risky living, things like this, and we can fall into some suffering because of this. It's not always because of that, though. Oftentimes, it's environmental. <clears throat> we suffer from natural phenomenons, earthquakes, droughts, floods, things like this. What can we say about all of these natural phenomena which overwhelm innocent people? It seems arbitrary like this earthquake in in Lisbon. I think what we need to understand is that in order for people to be free, there must be a nature, an environment, a world in which we demonstrate that freeness. In other words, there's got to be a stage on which we can be human and be free. Okay, this, this um, will hopefully make more sense as I go. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the popular um, author of the 1950s, um, points out that nature is that arena that we act freely in. It's a neutral something, he says, having a fixed nature of its own. In other words, we are not nature and nature is not us. And it has to be like that or else we wouldn't be free. Okay? If nature were not like this, We'd have no arena to demonstrate any free or responsible behavior. So consider it like this. If we're, ab- if, we're, if we're to be free, independent, truly free, then it demands that other things be free too. Because then you wouldn't be free. If I'm the free one and all of you are kind of bound to me, then none of you are free. Does that make sense? Well, in a world like that, though, with lots of individuals demonstrating a freeness we're going to start bumping into each other, including nature. Things are not under our control, in other words. If other things were not free, we would not be free. The unfortunate consequence of living in a, in a free world that's fallen is that that free world becomes more hostile towards us. And we end up being on the other end of its vengeance. You see, does that make sense? It can be argued that God did not intend his free world to be so hostile, to be so inhospitable to to each other, including nature. So in that sense, even natural disasters, we have to understand, are a consequence of a broken system. And again, back to point one, it's an intrusion. We can't argue that natural disasters are because God is judging us for some sort of sin, right? That's, that's not always true. I guess in Scripture it is sometimes true, but I think we've got to be careful not just to presume that we had a hurricane because we're in sin. A lot of times Christians do that. You've probably heard that before. You know, that, that hurricane came to New Orleans because they're sinful down there. That was the conclusion. That is presumptuous. And unless you're a prophet of God, which those don't exist anymore, you can't make that claim with any amount of assurance. Okay? But, but regardless of these things, suffering can be environmental. <clears throat> Disease, natural disaster is an environmental issue that oftentimes we're protected from based on where we are. So let me sum up a little bit here. There have always been people that argue that suffering is meaningless and without purpose. You see, friends, if, that's, if you say there, there can't be a God because, because of suffering, the only other conclusion that you can draw about suffering without God is that it's meaningless and, and without purpose. That's the only other thing that you can do. it Because without God, then that means it just kind of happened on its own, without direction, without control, without some architect behind it. So it becomes arbitrary. It becomes meaningless. It's without purpose. And we all know in our guts that that's not true. You know, we say kind of like insensitively sometimes to people, we got to be careful with this, is, you know, everything happens for a reason. You know, that doesn't always help. It usually doesn't when you're going through suffering. But friends, if there is no God, that's not true. It did happen for no reason. There was no purpose. 
<clears throat> in the ancient Near East, Stoics, it was a kind of philosophy, um, taught the need to submit to nature's inexorable laws. What they mean by that is there's no rhyme or reason for any of this. We're just part of the game of the parade, so just go along with it, so to speak. Epicureans taught people to escape from the randomness of the world through pleasure. So now they, they took this view on life, like all these horrible things happen without reason, so just have fun. You might as well enjoy it <laughs> while you can, because there's no meaning for it to any of this. And today, friends, some postmoderns, it's kind of not that far off from the way that we often think today. But moderns believe that everything, including life, suffering, and death, is meaningless and therefore absurd. But as Christians, oh, we can't follow this. The Bible doesn't allow for it. I don't think our reason or our conscience allows for it. There is a reason. We can't follow this line of thinking. In some way, says author John Stott, in some way, God is at work revealing his glory in and through suffering as he did through Christ's. And this is the transition now to the cross. The cross speaks to us in our pain. The cross makes sense of it. The cross gives us meaning and direction and reason and purpose and hope. It's the cross that answers the problem of pain and all of its complexities. You see, right now, I've gone over some things that might be helpful for you and kind of thinking about pain and suffering, why it happens, and giving you some perspective. But it's still falling short, I think, of a real answer, of something that we can go home with and say, oh, okay, I can, I can live by that. You see what I mean? And friends, that answer is the cross. That answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the answer to the problem of our pain. Um, the cross teaches us, number one, the first thing it teaches us is that suffering is a stimulus to patient endurance. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we know that he suffered so that he would produce in himself and others a patient endurance. Suffering is always a consequence of a broken world because of sin, and therefore at times undeserved, but Jesus models dealing with suffering in a way that I think should be the model. First Peter chapter 2, in our text we read, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow. One endures sorrow. How dare you say that to me, endure sorrow? Do you know what I've been through? It seems capricious and evil. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So he's saying, okay, we suffer sometimes because of our own mistakes. I mentioned that to you before. But what about when we don't deserve it? What about when it seems arbitrary or unfair? What credit when you, when, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Oh my goodness, are you, are you kidding me? The Christian has been called to this because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. You see those trigger behaviors. He didn't do them. He didn't revile. He didn't threaten. He was different. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to a God who judges justly. You see, he interpreted the pain as under God's just care. He knew God would be right in the end and do the right thing about it in the end. And because of that, Christ was able not to revile and not to be angry, not to wave his fists to heaven because he trusted God. It produced in him a patient endurance and faith in God. Jesus did not revile against his enemies, but he also didn't revile against his father. You see, sometimes it's easy, like when we can identify like the source Who's to blame for this? This person did this, I'm mad at you. It's clear. But what about when it's not so clear? 
What about when pain and suffering seem? There's no one to blame. Who do you blame when there's no one to blame? And that's usually when we turn to God. This is God's fault. You see, Jesus did not only not revile his enemies, he also didn't revile the Father. We're tempted to revile our maker. I've done it, friends. Why did you do this? Are you even there? Do you even care? But then something happens in the process of that trigger, that emotion, that blaming, that reviling, that God turns, uh, turns it to a blessing and makes you realize that he's, he is there and that he's bringing it somewhere that you and I never saw. Okay? The cross, also number two, is the path to mature holiness. The cross is the path to mature holiness. Now, when you, when you hear the word cross, the cross was Jesus' suffering. It was his trauma. You might fill in the blank with something else, but it's a cross, isn't it? Consider Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation. See, friends, we learn, really learn who we are and who God is when we suffer in a way that we never would have learned otherwise. The Bible says plainly, as mysterious as it might seem, that there's something about suffering for the Christian that leads us to a greater love and devotion to our maker. It leads us to trust. There's a process of being made perfect, maturing, that includes suffering. It includes being in a place that you never thought you'd be in and you desperately want to get out of. <clears throat> Stott says, suffering is the testing ground in which obedience becomes full grown. Isn't that great? There are analogies that Scripture uses that picture how the Lord makes us more like Christ. How do we grow in our faith? What is the, how does the Bible describe this process of growing in who you are in Christ as a Christian? The first analogy is of a father disciplining his children. Ouch. There's an ouch, <laughs> right, in growth in Christ. The metal worker refining silver and gold. Ouch. Right, that fire gets hot. The gardener pruning the vine so that the fruit thrives. Ouch. You see, there's a loss implied. There's a pain implied. There's a long suffering, a process that we don't just wake up one day and all of a sudden we get it. It's a, it describes a sort of negative process, but an all underlining a passive result which is the child's good, the, the plant's good, the gold's good, the vine's good. Psalm chapter 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Suffering is not the cause of growth. It's not what makes you grow, but it's what wakes you up to truth. It's the occasion of growth. It's when you start to realize, I have limits. I can't, I'm out of control. I can't control every circumstance of my life. I need this and that, and it was taken away from me. What do I do now? You can do one of two things. You can go buck wild, <laughs> or you can trust in Christ. You can say, he's the maker, he's the provider, and I need him if I'm going to survive. There's only two options. I take over, or he does. That's usually what we end up doing when suffering happens. We're out of here. I'll, I'll live my life. I'll do it the way I think I need to do it. But you see, the trust, is, the trust has been violated. We're insecure. So now we have to do something about it to keep us safe. Whatever that might be. It might be hiding. It might be isolating. It might be drugging. It might be drinking. It might be sexing. It might be whatever. You name it. But what we need to do in Scripture is let the Lord prune you. Let the Lord refine you. Turn to him so that you can experience his love and his growth. And you will grow strong. 
You see, friends, the fruitful tree, the giant tree with all sorts of fruit, is the fruit that has been through pruning. It's the, it's the, tree, that's, it's the tree that's been through suffering. The tree that's had things cut off violently. There's something about it that produces in us a fruit. Number three, the cross, is, the cross is the symbol of suffering service. John chapter 12. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life, will, hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there, way, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Friends, suffering is indispensable to fruitful service. In order to bring children to God and glory, in order to bring us to him, to himself, something's got to die. And that something was Jesus Christ. That's what Christ taught us. So friends, do you see your suffering as an occasion for blessing others, to help them, to save them. Number four, the cross of Christ is the hope of final glory. It's not the end. You see, oftentimes we come into despair and trauma because we think this is the end, this is it. But in Christ's trauma, in Christ's cross, it is the door to eternal life. Jesus looked beyond his death to his resurrection, beyond his suffering to his glory. Hebrews chapter 12 what a wonderful verse. Memorize it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He looked beyond his suffering to his glory. That's why he suffered. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Friends, everyone who wants to live a godly life, according to Paul, will be persecuted. That's the expectation of the Christian life. But the hope of glory makes that suffering bearable. It gives us perspective. It helps us see through to the end. That the end is not the divorce. The end is the marriage to Christ. See? That's the end. The promise to the believer is a great reward for enduring suffering now for the name of Christ. And that reward will come when we reign on this earth with him in eternal glory. Amen? Number Number five, the cross of Christ is the ground of reasonable faith. How is it reasonable to continue to trust God in the midst of suffering? How is it reasonable? That's the message of Job. That's what Job was wondering. When he lost everything in the midst of his suffering and loss, he was invited, Job, look at creation. Glimpse at the cre- take a glimpse at the creator in glory. Look what he's done around you. Look at the stars, Job. Look at the creatures in the sea. Look at the birds in the sky. Look at the animals around you. Look at how they're cared for. Look at all of these wonderful things, Job. You see, friends, when we suffer, it causes us to realize about God's care, what God has done for us and for others in spite of these things. Job responded in spite of his trial, I know my Redeemer lives. In spite of something that's died in my life, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that life is what matters. He's in control. He sits at the right hand of God. And whatever I've lost, I will gain more. Amen? Finally, and most importantly, number six. The cross is the proof of God's personal, loving solidarity with us in our pain. The cross is God's proof that God loves you. The cross is God's proof not only does he love you, but he shares your burden. He shares it with you. He carries it with you. Pain is endurable, said one, but the seeming indifference of God is not. We can deal with pain at times, but when we think God doesn't care or that he's not there, for some reason, that destroys us. We can't bear life thinking that. Some have asked, if God is truly in charge, somehow connected to the world's suffering, why is he so capricious? Why is he so unfair? Is God like a cosmic sadist who delights in watching us squirm? John Stott says, it is this terrible character of God, caricature of God, which the cross 
smashes to smithereens. God does care. Listen to the words of Eli Weissel, who was a boy in a Nazi camp, a Jewish boy. He says, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my night into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget the smoke of the crematorium. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. And John Stott replies, I could never myself believe in a God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how can one worship a God who is immune to it? See what he's saying? He was in the crematorium. He was there with Faisal. And he's there with you. He's on the cross with you. You see, that's the God we have. That's the only way that I can make sense of any of it, of any suffering or any trauma, that he hangs there with me. I was reading the same book by Stott, and he, know, he, he noted that at times, and I've mentioned this before, but at times he's, he was very famous and he used to travel. He's out east, and he's been to all these different Buddhist temples, and he always noticed the Buddha, the statue of the Buddha, sort of kind of like transcendent from the rest of us, this little grin, like a little chubby, kind of happy, lots of fruit around him, right? Like just distant, away, doesn't understand the suffering that we endure, just kind of happy, peaceful, right? That's the, that's the statue of the Buddha sort of remote, aloof, above the turbulence of time. And he says, each time after a while, I have to turn away from those statues and imagine a different figure. I have to turn instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dried and tolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That's the God for me. Amen? That's the God for me. That's the only God that makes sense of this world. It's the only one. The God that dies with us. Let's pray.